0: Grace, mercy, and peace to You from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are some great things about having a church year. A liturgy. A lectionary of readings. Collects. And other propers of the day. That is, in having those things that, with an ever-changing dynamic of variety still puts a predictable framework around our gathering together in worship as God's people. For one thing, those elements help unite Christian congregations, both across the breadth of a church body and even across generations in the span of history. Having that commonality helps us to connect in our confession of the faith. It gives people some level of comfort and a degree of familiarity in going from place to place, whether it be in their travels or in moving from one city to another. In fact, the the very fact that people have to church shop for the right sort of congregation when they're on vacation or they're settling into a new town is really a sad collateral effect of our own self-centeredness. We end up seeking a church that is created in our own image, according to our own likeness and preferences, rather than conforming ourselves to what God has given to His church. A second benefit of this structure is that familiar patterns of worship help teach us the truths about God and about the faith. Worship is catechetical. Repetition drills knowledge and habits into us until they become part of our nature. From tying our shoes to multiplication tables to stripping a rifle to hitting the gymnasium. Repetition breeds habits. It breeds skills and instills confidence that we will have the knowledge and the skills and the attributes that we need when we have to call upon them in times of duress. Thirdly, In adopting and accepting this dynamic framework from outside of ourselves, both pastors and congregations submit themselves to guidance, to outside authority. We do not become the axle around which everything else revolves. We become disciples, followers of external teaching. Our own egos and feelings and preferences and pet agendas are subordinated rather than amplified. Even so, we still get quite a bit of latitude within this framework. For example, we know our church body has both approved and published a service book in the last few years. One with a wide variety of service settings. Five of them for the divine service alone. We also have multiple services for morning and evening worship. Services for confession and for prayer. For preaching and for baptism. We have two different lectionaries we can use for the church year, and yet another for daily reading. Within the church year in those lectionaries, we're sometimes even offered more than one alternative for the day as well. We have hundreds of hymns in dozens of categories. Unless we mistakenly think that all of our hymns are derived from authors and composers who lived in 16th century Germany, Take a good look sometime at those lists of authors and composers in the back of our hymnal. Yes, there are a lot of Teutonic names listed there, it's true. If only because the eternal theology that we confess was rejuvenated and reformed within that Germanic culture at the time of God's choosing. But that theology did not originate there. Nor has it remained captive and isolated there. We sing psalms from David's time. Hymns from a multitude of cultures and languages. From Moses and Isaiah. From Samuel and Luke. And also from Ambrose. From Bernard. From Bede the Venerable. From Clement. From Gregory the Great. From John Huss. Luther and Bach and all the rest. In fact, there are even multiple people sitting in this church today that know others whose efforts are on those pages. Within that flexible framework, God's church has adopted, we now have some elasticity in what we do today. Now because of the way the church year and the secular years intersect here in 2012, we could have observed the feast of the circumcision and name of Jesus today on January the 1st. Yet we can also observe the first Sunday after Christmas as we are and the Gospel reading for the latter. The reading that you heard a short time ago comes from Luke 2. In some lectionaries, that reading itself can be varied, one being only 11 verses long, or the 19 verses that we heard today. So are you still with me so far? Now, just to make things a little bit more dynamic and maybe even a little bit confusing, the Gospel lesson for this first Sunday after Christmas describes the purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus. Now in the church year, that normally happens on February the 2nd, 40 days after Christmas. You see, according to the law that was handed down by God to His people, it was 40 days after a male child's birth that he was to be presented to the Lord and his mother ritually purified. In keeping with the instructions of Leviticus 12, The Virgin Mary and her husband Joseph had already had the baby Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, which on our calendar does fall on January the 1st. And then on the 40th day, Mary also goes through the purification rites following childbirth. And this includes making an offering in God's temple. As we begin this reading, Luke's theological emphasis becomes clear. Mary and Joseph are trying to be pious keepers of God's law. They're doing everything according to the Torah's instruction. Jesus is being taught to keep God's law as well. And here on His 40th day, God's Son, our Savior, comes to His Father's house for the first of many, many times. He who will be known as prophet, priest, and king is carried in His mother's arms into God's house. There she will give the Father thanks and praise for this wondrous gift. Once again, Mary and Joseph will be surprised and startled by the testimony concerning who their child is and with what great hopes he has been entrusted. Already, back in chapter 1 of Luke, the angel Gabriel told Mary of the wondrous birth that was to be. Then, John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb at the mere sound of Mary's voice. Then early in chapter 2, the Christmas story. Shepherds came to the manger with amazing stories of angel choirs and tidings of great joy concerning this child. And now in the latter part of chapter 2, two elderly saints, Simeon and Anna, are overcome with joy. They praise God that they have been given the opportunity to lay their hands and lay their eyes upon God's infant King, the long-awaited Savior of the world. Uh, Compared with St. Mark's opening understated line, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Luke's two-chapter infancy narrative is far more complete. In the church's traditional understanding, Luke's narrative is less the product of a fertile theological and literary effort and more a reflection of an oral history through interviews with the elderly Mary, perhaps at St. John's house in Ephesus. Looking back on her life and her joy and pain of being the mother of God, Mary tells Luke intimate details that describe a pious home life and the spiritual nurture that shaped and molded the human nature of the Savior of the world. All of this serves as encouragement to parents who would raise their own children to be followers of that same son. Simeon and Anna, too, they serve as wonderful examples to our piety as representatives of the very best of the Jewish religious tradition, they rejoice to see the infant King and Savior. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who will take offense at Jesus and even reject the Son of God, Simeon and Anna are filled with the Holy Spirit. They testify to the wondrous things that God has already done and will yet do through this child. And they are the forerunners of many, many Jews who will come to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, and the Savior of the world. Centuries of Christians know Simeon's song even if they cannot remember his name. Because after receiving the Lord's body and blood, we often sing the nunc dimittis, don't we? Lord, now You let Your servant go in peace. Your Word has been fulfilled. Simeon is the embodiment of devotion. He spends his days in God's house praising and thanking Him, longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. For her part too, Anna is the embodiment of the pious widow. She also spends her days in God's house praising and thanking Him. Her only hope is in the Lord God. As a prophetess, too, she proclaims the coming crucifixion of God's Son and the stumbling block that He will be to those who will reject Him. Simeon and Anna are role models for elderly saints today, those whom God has not yet called from this life. They show what is possible when eyes and ears are not tuned to the disappointments and the heartaches of life, but to the hopes and the promises that God offers to all who put their trust in Him. Others may show bitterness or cynicism as they age. They may yield to depression or world weariness. But not Simeon and not Anna. With great rejoicing, they point to the infant King and Savior. It is as if they were saying, what joy to know that God answers our prayers and keeps His promises in Jesus Christ. What joy to see and hear and yes, even hold Him even before He goes to His cross for us and for our salvation, even before He raises Himself from the dead and ascends in glory and intercedes for us at the Father's right hand. When fathers and mothers and godparents and grandparents bring little ones to receive the gift of God's baptism, they are much like Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna. God has entrusted parents with so much more than simply a living validation they have been here. So much more than they, than they have left behind a mere flesh and blood monument to their own existence. Rather, God has placed in their hands a fragile and precious gift. In the case of Mary and Joseph, and today in the case of Anna and Simeon, this gift is, upon, is one upon whom their very future and indeed the whole world's future depends. Their faithfulness and their godly example are important. Many parents and mentors, though, get their roles jumbled up by broken imaginations in a broken world. It is not that God does not care if a child hones and develops his or her talents and has a successful life. Indeed, God has given everyone great gifts for the well-being of their neighbor to be used in their little corner of God's world in which they will live out their earthly lives. But it's essential to remember that if one raises a child to gain the world, but he or she loses his or her soul, then it is an eternal tragedy, one of unimaginable cost. Like Mary and Joseph, and like Simeon and Anna, parents and godparents and grandparents and other interested mentors, hold in their hand a gift, a life created by Him who is the greatest gift ever given. A parent who refuses to bring his or her child for baptism, who refuses to surrender his own life to God's good and gracious will, is already a millstone around his child's neck. The baby does not know what he or she is missing. Likewise, the parent who always finds an excuse to avoid worship or to not bring the child for baptism, and who whines impious and unoriginal words about the church's failings, is also a millstone around his or her child's neck. As the Lord Jesus later says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better that one had a millstone hung around his or her neck and be cast into the sea. Jesus' many warnings about spiritual enslavement by Money and possessions can just as easily be extended to all of the cultural imperatives of our present dark age. So-called enlightened parents are captive to dark forces when in their high hopes for a child's earthly success, they opt not to bring their children to the services of God's house. When they fail to place in that child's possession copies of the Holy Scriptures, when they do not teach them the basics of the faith, and when they fail to provide... For their instruction. That is why Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna become essential to our understanding of what good parenting really is. What good mentoring really is. They fly in the face of all of the high-sounding nonsense which reduces human life to nothing more than a bag of chemicals. Jesus is the author of life, as well as the author and perfecter of our faith. He is, by His death on the cross for the whole world, the guarantor that all of life is precious. All of life is lovable and valuable to God. Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna exemplify for parents and for godparents, for grandparents and for mentors everywhere the essential role that they are called to be shapers and molders of a godly life. How will the child be baptized into the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection if he is not brought to baptism in the first place? How will a child be nurtured in the Christian faith and life if, she, if he or she has no teachers, has no examples of righteousness? How will the child come to know the shape of the Christian life as daily dying to sin and rising to new life if no one models it for him or her? How will the child learn to open God's Word? To pray? To sing God's praises if no one around him or her is fluent in the ways of God's Kingdom? How will the child learn to value not only his life or her own life, but also the lives of others? If no one ever shows in countless ways that life is a wonderful gift from a great and compassionate God. And so today we have Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna as encouragers for us to offer our own sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. For God has graciously sent His only begotten Son into our flesh to save us, to redeem us, those who are lost and condemned from sin, from death, and from Satan. Baptized into His death and into His resurrection then, and nourished with His own true body and blood in the bread and the wine, we can indeed offer our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Not only with our lips, but also with our lives. We do well this day as parents and godparents, as grandparents and as mentors, even just as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to remember that every child is a precious gift from the great Giver. Treasures such as these are to be cherished and guarded. They're to be stewarded in such a way that the divine gifts that each child has received are nurtured until they give God the glory that is due Him. Glory that is His alone forever and ever. May the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us in this way of life so that our words and our deeds bring glory and honor and worship and praise to our holy and triune God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.